We praise you, Father. These gifts are yours, as is all of our lives. And we ask that that you'd use them for the extension of your kingdom, the good of your people, and for the glory of your name. In Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would remain standing for the reading of the word, uh, it's our pleasure to welcome uh, Reverend Glodo to the pulpit. A reading of scripture this morning comes from Luke's gospel, the second chapter, I'm sorry, the first chapter. I'll begin reading at verse 39. Hear the word of God. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Will you pray with me? God, God the Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray that your Spirit would enliven our hearts, that we would believe these words. And we pray that we might not be hearers of this word only, but doers as well. And I pray that you would help me to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And all these things we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a pleasure to be with you again. It wasn't the frog legs that kept me away. Once I knew where to get them, I just cut out the middleman. I remember the food, speaking of food that my grandmother Glodo cooked for me over many years. Uh, But there was a time in my life where I thought I had two Grandma Glodos. There was one with teeth and one without teeth. 
And as we would travel 45 minutes or so to see her, probably once a month, and she had her yellow chicken dumplings, her uh, chocolate uh, meringue pie, and everything else that went with it. And as we walked into her kitchen and smelled those smells, and she had on her apron over her Sunday dress, because this would always, almost always be on Sunday after we had been to church at home, we would walk in her door and she would bend over and she said, give us some sugar. And if you've ever been kissed by someone without teeth, you'll never forget it. (laughs) And then we'd eat, and uh, around time for everybody to load up in the car and go home, someone would say, we need to take a picture. And somebody would pull out an old brownie camera, I think it was my grandfather, and my grandma would disappear into her bedroom, And another woman would come out without an apron, but with teeth. Uh, Well, you figured out the uh, riddle by now. It was one and the same person, except she looked so different with and without teeth. For a few years, at least, I thought I had two grandmas named Glodo. It will also help you appreciate when later on we bought for her birthday one time a little porcelain container called Chopper Hopper, printed on the side of it. Uh, It was rarely empty. They were one and the same person, yet she looked so different with and without teeth that she seemed two entirely different people, at least uh, to a child's eye. Well, I suggest to you we often have the same problem at Christmas time, the same confusion. We reread and we recall, and in some cases we even reenact the Christmas story, uh, the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. We see in the Christmas story this beatific scene of a, a quiet group of livestock centered around a, a quiet, sweet infant child with a, an adoring mother and father standing nearby and shepherds on a knee with angels singing. We even sing Christmas carols that paint this scene, Silent Night, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And yet when we move on past Christmas, uh, the baby Jesus that we read about in the Christmas story doesn't always connect with the adult Jesus. The adult Jesus who confronted hypocrites, who cast out demons, who stilled storms, uh, who healed the sick who brought good news to the poor. The adult Jesus who was perceived as a threat to both the religious and the civil order, such that he was unjustly accused, arrested, beaten, and crucified. And by the time we get to the resurrection, it's very likely that we leave behind the infant baby Jesus. By the time we get to this Jesus, the Jesus with teeth, we have all all but forgotten the baby Jesus. So what I'd like to do this morning in re-looking at uh, Mary's song is to connect the two together, the infant Jesus and the adult Jesus. Because in her song, she tells us that everything he would do as an adult began with his birth. The Jesus of Christmas, no less than the Jesus of the resurrection, is a baby with teeth. 
And those, two, those teeth mean one of two things for us. They mean a divine smile for the humble, or they mean terror for the proud. This baby with teeth means a divine smile for the humble, or terror for the proud. First, let's see what the news of this baby uh, portends, what it teaches us to expect, because the news of this baby, first of all, is good news that is to to be believed. Good news to be believed. This story is written in such a way that reminds us that the story of the infant Jesus is written as a testimony, as a testimony, uh, and as is frequently happening in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel, we have all manner of people and angels giving testimony about the significance of this baby. In fact, Luke begins the gospel that way, doesn't he? He said, many have written about what I'm about to write about, and I know about those stories, and I have given study to them, and uh, theologians will refer to Luke as the historian Above all the gospel writers, he is meticulous in his historical method because he wants to give his patron, Theophilus, confidence about the things that he has been taught. And so the first two chapters of Luke's gospel are particularly given to us as testimony of who this baby is, and testimony is given to give us confidence in what we have been taught about him. The story that we read in Uh, The scripture reading begins with a greater, that is, a high priest's wife, blessing the younger. You would expect it to be the other way around. The younger, the less in status, would bless the greater. But no, uh, Elizabeth, the wife of the high priest, Zechariah, blesses Mary. Not only does Elizabeth bless Mary, but John the Baptist leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. Where Luke's purpose in this beginning was to give us full confidence in the story of Jesus, we have the testimony of Elizabeth and John. We also have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel mentions the Holy Spirit 28 times, more than any of the other gospels combined. The Holy Spirit was... uh, With John at conception, in chapter 1, verse 15, he would be full of the Holy Spirit from the time he was conceived, John the Baptist would be. Elizabeth is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit when she greets Mary, in verse 41. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed, we're told there. And Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when his tongue is loosened again, now that he has witnessed the birth of his own son, the Holy Spirit is upon him to proclaim, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, in verse 68. John the Baptist, in the very next chapter, will give testimony to who Jesus is. That was a purpose for which he was born, to be the forerunner, to, to, to prepare the way of the Lord as a witness of what was coming in Jesus, because Jesus would come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And even after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him like a dove, and a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, 
listen to Him. Do you see how the opening chapters of Luke's gospel are all geared toward telling us who this person is, this Jesus, His significance, and the fact that we must listen. We must believe the good news that comes with His birth. Here the infant John, full of the Holy Spirit in vitro, testifies to the identity of Jesus. John the Baptist preached his first sermon testifying to Jesus Christ even before he was born. Elizabeth twice pronounces blessing on Mary. Uh, You see in uh, verse um, 45, I'm sorry, in verse 42, Elizabeth says blessed twice. It's a different word than the word blessed in verses 45 and, and, uh, and below. Uh, the word blessed in verse uh, 42 is uh, to pronounce a good word upon, to declare a blessing upon, uh, because Mary is favored because of the child that she bears. And Elizabeth calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Now, some of you may know this, the word Lord that we read in the Gospels, it can mean uh, simply a title of respect, you know, such as uh, Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. But Luke is very careful to make it clear in a subtle way who the Lord really is because Luke takes Old Testament quotations that refer to Jehovah and translates them with this word Lord and applies them to Jesus. John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. Well, who was the Lord for whom he was preparing the way? It was none other than Jesus himself. And throughout Luke's gospel, the Lord is used to refer to Jesus with that clear connection being made with Jehovah of the Old Testament. This baby is none other than God present with them. And because he is present... The good news of His coming is to be believed. Because Mary is described by Elizabeth as the one who has believed what the Lord had spoken to her. She is blessed because she has believed this word from the angels. Now, you know what every child ultimately one day will do, and everyone here probably has done on Christmas morning once the packages have been opened. Every child at some time in their life, and probably more than one time in their life, will end up playing with what? The box. And there's a risk here that the Christmas story can become contemptuous with familiarity. That is, we can be so accustomed to it and so familiar with it that we end up playing with the box instead of the gift that's in the box. The announcement of this baby is a gift to humankind, a gift to God's covenant people. And the news of his pending birth is news that is to be met with believing, as Mary has done. Christmas is not a spectator sport. Christmas, the observance of the Advent season is an annual opportunity to once again close the hand of faith around the good news that Christ has come and that God has heard the cries of His people. 
Believing is not a vaccination, which having been done once in one's life is sufficient for the rest of life. The gospel is a word to be believed and believed and continually believed and believed forevermore. And so let's not miss the opportunity that the Advent season presents once again to say, Lord, I believe. So the good news is to be believed. But the good news is also good news only for some. Why do I say that? Well, it's no more clear than it is in verses 51 and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. You see, Mary recognizes and she sings about it that there is a gigantic cosmic divine teeter-totter that's entering the scene here. You know how teeter-totter works. For somebody to go up, what else must happen? Somebody else must go down. And this is where we see the baby's teeth. He comes not simply to bless indiscriminately, but He comes to free those who have been captive, to lift up those who have been pressed down by life, humbled by their circumstances. But in the process, there will be those who are proud, those who are exalted in their own hearts, those who, by virtue of their life circumstances, believe that they stand in a place in which they deserve and they have gotten there by any means necessary. For those people, this is bad news. Social convention is being overturned. And the song itself bears witness to how completely and utterly this social convention will be overturned. This is the Magnificat. Uh, we know it by the Latin title from the Latin translation of the Bible, the Vulgate. It's one of three songs in the opening of Luke's Gospel. There is the, uh, uh, the Benedictus of Zechariah uh, when he uh, blesses God in chapter 1, as well as the Nunc Dimittis, Now let your servant depart in peace, that is prayed by uh, the elderly uh, Simeon later. But this song is... Uh, And I'm glad Clint said what he said uh, because I I love reading the Gospels from the standpoint of the Old Testament. You see, uh, the early uh, Christians uh, would have read the Gospels with the Old Testament in one hand and the Gospels in the other. Because the news of Jesus doesn't come out of thin air, it doesn't arise whole cloth out of nothing. It arises against the background of what God has been doing for His covenant people for ages. And so this this song of Mary is a mosaic of Old Testament allusions. It it echoes the song of Hannah. Hannah was the wife of the priest Elkanah, and she was barren, and she uh, couldn't have a child, and she was a subject of derision because of it. But then God enabled her to conceive in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and uh, she conceived the son uh, that would be known as Samuel, and she sang a song. She said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hungry. Mary knows Hannah because Mary knows the God of the Old Testament and she knows the Scriptures. Mary also knows the Psalms. There are as many as a dozen psalms alluded to in Mary's song, not the least of which is Psalm 107, in which is said these words, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. You see, this news of Jesus is good news for those who are hungry. For those who have cried out to the Lord. And so Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Tim Keller has just published a book on uh, praying the Psalms. And it's an ancient and revered practice of Christians for millennia. There is no better place to learn the heart of God than in the Psalms. And this Mary that we meet, this teenage virgin child who finds herself with child by the Holy Spirit, draws upon that well of the songs which the Holy Spirit gave His people so that they could return those words to Him in petition and in praise and in thanks. Mary also knows the story of God's salvation in the Old Testament. She mentions in verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. If you just simply read through the book of Deuteronomy, you would find that God's arm was bared in the, book, in the Exodus. That Moses spoke of what God did in freeing His people from slavery in Egypt and opening the Red Sea and enabling them to pass through and bringing judgment upon their oppressors and bringing them safely into the promised land. Moses described those things as God having rolled up his sleeve and bared his strong right arm. He is mighty. He is powerful. And he is particularly mighty and powerful for his covenant People. In verse 54, we're told he had helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And the word mercy there doesn't even begin to come close to, to saying what the Old Testament said. The word mercy there is a way of translating a word that would have meant for the Old Testament reader, God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness. That what God is doing and what Mary is celebrating is not God simply coming to turn things upside down, but He's doing so for His people to whom He made promises and to whom He swore twice by merely saying it and then by swearing by what He has said to be a covenant God to His people, to to administer His loving kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love Him and to their children's children. This song of Mary announces what is a great theme of Luke's gospel, uh, a great theme known as the reversal theme. Because in Luke, the majority of those who are thrown down even are insiders. 
They're not the Gentiles who are raging from the outside, but they're the religious leaders of Israel who became proprietary over God's covenant promises, who saw God's election of Israel as a status rather than a blessing. Jesus will later tell a parable about wicked tenants who were given this pristine vineyard and they were to keep good care of it and they were to pay the rent to the vineyard owner. But they kept the rent. They didn't render stewardship to the one whose vineyard it was. And God sent His messengers time after time. And each time His messengers were met with more severe rejection. And finally the landowner said, I will send my son. Surely they will listen to him. And in Luke's gospel, you can can hear it echoing, right? Surely they will listen to the one about whom the Spirit spoke at his baptism. Surely they will listen to the one who on the Mount of Transfiguration, the divine voice said, this is my chosen one. Surely they will listen to him. But what does the parable tell us they did? They saw the sun coming. And they said, ah, the sun is coming. If we kill the sun, the inheritance will be ours. The crowd is enraged. And Jesus says, the stone which the builders have rejected will become the cornerstone. And the vineyard will be taken away and given it to those who will produce fruit. And so while the religious leaders who opposed Jesus found themselves on the bottom of the seesaw, the humble poor who followed Jesus found themselves exalted in Him. The good news is not good news for everybody. It exposes the thoughts of the proud. It produces opposition in our hearts. The deeper the gospel probes, the more surprised we are to find that our order is opposed to God's at our deepest level. God's ways are not our ways. God comes to the humble poor because it's the humble that He will exalt. Peter says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and He will exalt you at the proper time. Mary knew this from the conception of Jesus. And she sings about it. You know what a refrigerator moment is? A refrigerator moment is when you get up off the couch and get something from the refrigerator because you know something irrelevant is happening on the television. Maybe it's when Florida has the ball. I could have gone all day without saying anything like that. God forgive me. But you know, uh, if, if, you're, if you men are like me, when you watch a musical, whenever the, the starlet of the musical begins to sing, that's the refrigerator moment. Maria singing tonight, tonight. That's a good long one. You can pop some microwave popcorn in that song. But this song is no refrigerator moment. It is a full-on gospel that she sings. That God has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. She knows the promises of God and His covenant. And when she sings, this is the spotlight of the whole show. Everything that will play out from here on will be a fulfillment of what is spoken of early in in Luke's testimony. And it's a testimony that says, 
God fills hungry people with good things. That Jesus had not come for those who were well, but He came like a physician for those who were sick. He was criticized for associating with sinners and tax collectors, and that's why He explained what He did. And you see this, you you see a parable about a rich man who said, I'm going to build bigger barns. And that night he died. You see, a seed sown on thorny soil whose thorns choke out the seed of the good news. You see a rich ruler who went away very sad. Why? Because he was extremely rich. United Methodist Bishop Willimon says, Yes, it's possible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's hell on the camel. And this is the invitation, in fact, the exhortation of this story, this song of Mary. For all, no matter in what station of life they find themselves, to get low. And that's the last thing I want us to see here. This good news is not just something to be believed. It's not only good news for some, but the good news calls all of us to get low, to get low. Mary's belief in God's announcement to her when the angel comes is in direct contrast with Zechariah, the high priest. If you remember his story, he comes in for the annual service. It's it's his turn to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And there he is told that he and Elizabeth, even in their old age, will have a child. And Zechariah is incredulous. He's speechless, in fact. So, in God's uh, ironic way, he renders Zechariah speechless for a while. What's Mary's response? Let it be done to me according to your will, O Lord. What's the difference between the two? Zechariah was no doubt a righteous man. He believed. His wife, uh, Elizabeth, was pious as well. Why would Zechariah be incredulous and Mary say, Let it be done to me according to your will? Their stations in life were different. And it points out to us the great advantage of being humbled. The great advantage of being humbled. Antonin Dvorak, the great classical composer, was brought to America to identify and then teach a distinctive American music sound. But rather than bringing all of the music of Europe and imposing the music of Europe on the distinctive American spirit, he looked in America. And he said he looked to two peoples. He looked to Native Americans and he looked to the sharecropper descendants of former slaves. Because he said it was in the humbling circumstances of those two kinds of people that the greatest music was found. It's in the humble estate, the low, mean circumstances of Mary, that the greatest song ever sung is found.
She's likely in her mid-teens. Thankfully and providentially, she's engaged to a man who also is willing to trust the Lord because he had every right to put her away when he found that she was pregnant. You know, Luke's Gospel presents uh, overall a picture of what God is doing. And uh, I teach my students that the, 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 the Gospel of Luke is teaching us that God's universal plan is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That the Gospel of Luke boasts this gigantic, enormous, cosmic, universal plan of God that was planned from the beginning and it's now being fulfilled according to God's timing and ways. And yet here in the opening of Luke's Gospel, we see God's universal plan, and if I can think of it this way, as a gossamer thread. We know how how perilous pregnancy is. Even with all of our medical technology and the wonderful prenatal care that, that, that is available uh, to, widely to people these days, pregnancy is a perilous time. Think of all that God had done in the Old Testament, progressing persistently, progressively, marching toward what Paul calls the fullness of time. When God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of the law, and He has entrusted that plan to a helpless human embryo. But this is the nature of God's ways. Because who will be the greatest among you but the one who is a servant of all? Who has the greatest hope in the good news? The person who is the most hopeless in this life. Don't you see that there is an inverse relationship between our hope in this world and our hope in God? And Jesus bears this out in His life and ministry. He tells about a wedding feast where the privileged friends of the host are too busy to come. They have their things to do. They have their priorities. And so who is invited? The host of the wedding feast tells his servants, go out to the highways and the byways and invite all who will. And those who came to that wedding feast were the poor and the hungry, the needy, the humble. When I was uh, a child... Every once in a while, my kids will ask me, what was your favorite Christmas toy? I have no problem remembering. My parents gave me... A, a, the, greatest Chris, the greatest gifts are ones which have the potential to maim or injure. Uh, many of you can remember when long steel darts were a favorite uh, that were to be tossed between two people called jarts. This year, my parents decided not to give me a dangerous toy, but it was a noisy one. It was a repeating rifle that all I had to do was pull the trigger continuously and made a very loud bang. And I did. I pulled it continuously from first daylight until bedtime. That was my favorite Christmas toy. But then I got up one morning, reached for it, pulled the trigger... Nothing happened. 
And I went in to tell my mother, Mom, my gun broke. She looked unsurprised. (laughs) And it wasn't until years later as I was thinking about this, and I thought, no, she didn't. (laughs) But my father was handy. And so I think she did. (laughs) But don't you see, this is the grace of God to bring us down, to break our Christmas toys. If you're in circumstances where your hope in this life has been in upheaval or even shattered, whether your awareness of your mortality has made you mindful of how passing this life is, or whether you're a young person entering the economy that is so uncertain and unsure that we speak of it as unprecedented, if a relationship which has become your heart's idol has flown away with the wind, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Psalm 107 tells us that God used all those circumstances so that God's people would cry out to the Lord and He would deliver them from all their sins. This is an invitation to meet the divine warrior who is now in vitro. But that's God's way of making war against the order of this world, against the idolatrous affections of our hearts, to make war against the bondage to sin and the fallen nature of Adam, to deprive us, to snatch from our hands those things which prevent us from Him. And this is why it's good news. It's good news for you if you are not yet humbled. The psalmist says, Seek Him in a day when He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Break your own toys and receive the good news. It's hope for the not yet humbled. But it's hope for the already humble. Matthew's Gospel says of Jesus, A bruised reed he would not break, and a smoking flax he would not extinguish. He is a gentle Savior. He loves to lift up those who are down. He came and gave his life to exalt those who were without hope in this world. So that James tells us, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation because he has experienced it through humility. Be blessed like Mary, the one who has obtained her song through the most difficult of circumstances. So it's good news for the not yet humbled. There's hope for the already humble. But there's also a command in this, I think, for us. And it's a command for us to get with the low. I was involved in a church plant in East Orlando for about three years. And uh, we, uh, we had a weekly appointment with a homeless camp when we could find it because it often moved around. Uh, the sheriffs had to move them around periodically. And so it was probably the most 
uh, frequent and continued contact I've had with the homeless in my life. And you know what I learned about the homeless people? Who helps homeless people the most? Other homeless people. And the gospel calls us to get with the low, to identify with those of mean circumstances. And this is not strictly economics, although economics correlates with it a great deal. But to get with the low, that means we don't worry about the proud. We don't make our RSVP list on those who can pay us back, if you refer to another gospel of Jesus, another parable of Jesus. We can have hope in God's arm. That is, God is strong to save. And that when we get with the low, we have the opportunity to share the good news that Christ exalts the low and brings down the proud. But also, getting with the low means living the life of the open hand. Deuteronomy 15 speaks so well of this, that to view our lives not as ones in which we receive from God and close our hands around, but rather we receive from God and remain with open hands so that others might receive from God. Because if we get with the low, we'll be in the right neighborhood of the kingdom of God. And all of this because in the story of Jesus, and as we confessed our faith this morning, Jesus in Christ, God, has gotten low. That though He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but instead He divested Himself. He emptied Himself of the privileges of divine glory. While remaining fully God, He became fully man and identified us with us in our sin so that His righteousness is reckoned to us and our sin reckoned to Him. So if you want to follow Jesus, you follow Him by getting low, by taking up His cross and following in His path. So, the good news is good news to be believed. The good news is good news for some, but not for all. And the good news calls us to get low. I can think of no passage in literature which describes this best than Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation. There's a prim and proper, self-supporting white woman who's in a doctor's office, and she's looking across at a poor teenage girl who's ugly and demented, and she's having sympathy in her heart for this young girl because she is a a better person than that young girl. But that young girl looks across at her and, and, and lunges at her and screams, You warthog from hell! And the, the other people pull the girl off of her and they take her away, but the, the woman is all uh, uh, flustered. And, and the, the more she thinks about it as she, she drives home to her farm, uh, the more and more she thinks about it, the more she preoccupied is, she, the more preoccupied she is with what's been said to her. And she starts this conversation with God. She says, why do you send me a message like that? How am I a hog and me both? How am I saved and from hell too? Why me? It's no trash around here that I haven't given to. And break my back to the bone every day, working and doing for the church. 
and at the end of the day, she's feeding her own pigs. And she's carrying on this conversation with God. She says, how am I a hog? Exactly how am I like them? As she's looking down to the hogs. There's plenty of trash back there in the doctor's office. It didn't have to be me. If you like trash better, God, go get yourself some trash then. Honesty is beginning to prevail. But then comes the revelation after which the story is titled. And it's, I'll just read you a, 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 a hopefully short enough passage that will make the point. In the deepening light, everything was taking on a mysterious hue. The pasture was growing a peculiar glassy green, and the streak of a highway had turned lavender. She braced herself for a final assault, and this time her voice rolled out over the pasture. Go on, she yelled. Call me a hog. Call me a hog again from hell. Call me a warthog from hell. Put that bottom rail on top. There'll still be a top and bottom. Who do you think you are? And the story concludes. She stood looking at the pigs as the light faded to red and the sun slipped behind the tree line. And the highway that she was seeing was transformed into a highway into the sky. And on it was a vast horde of souls rumbling toward heaven. Whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and her husband, had always had a little of everything and a God-given wit to use it right. And they alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. You see, the Song of Mary is an invitation and it's an exhortation to rush to the end of the line because it's the end of the line where God meets us in Christ. It's not our doings. It's not our pity, but it is our own recognition of our poverty apart from the riches of God's grace in Christ. A divine smile for the humble and terror for the proud. If you're already low, take comfort. This baby has teeth. If you're not low, be afraid. This baby has teeth. As the second psalm says, Why do the nations conspire? Why do the kings of the earth devise a vain thing? Against the Lord and His anointed, He will rule them with a rod of iron. But blessed are those who kiss the Son. Blessed are those who kiss the Son. Let's pray. God, we pray we might take counsel and be encouraged as we are renewed once again in the wonder of the Incarnation, in the spectacular, profligate, prodigal mercy of you, our God, who have looked upon the humble estate of your servants and who fill the hungry with good things. Oh, Lord, we pray for a holy hunger that nothing shall separate us from your love which is in Christ because in your grace you break our hope in every earthly thing. And we ask that you would help us 
to look upon those who are discouraged, hopeless, to come and be with them, to share the hope of the world, which is Jesus Christ. And we pray it in His name. Amen. Now let's stand together and sing.